You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I'll invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at the first five verses of it this morning. want to reiterate a glad welcome to our cross-court uh, families guests and players who are with us today. We're so glad that you're here and uh, looking forward to spending some time and lunch and the uh, trophy ceremony a little bit uh, later. If you're um, looking for a church home, you're here today, I draw your attention to one of the connect cards that should be in the pew close by you, in front of you. I invite you to fill one of those out and let us know that you were here today and we'll be able to send you some information uh, about our church. And uh, so I encourage you to do that this morning. You also should have noticed in your bulletin today there was uh, a little prayer brochure about the Annie Armstrong Easter offering that's coming up for North American missions. There's a prayer guide in there and uh, encourage you to incorporate that in your Uh, 40 days of uh, praying that we're doing a great opportunity to remember North American missions prayer coincidentally is one of our focuses here in Paul's words to us in Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 and we'll give our attention to that now he writes for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word today, and we pray that we might have ears to hear it. And I pray that you would use me as your servant pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth and I pray it in Jesus name amen well for those just joining us back in January we started a study of this letter in Colossians Um, it was uh, a letter written by the Apostle Paul and we have been uh, breaking it down just looking at a few verses of it uh, in each time, in each setting, small, a small section of it. And the advantage of doing that, looking at it in small sections, is that we get to think carefully about the details of which Paul uh, has written to us. And that's always worthwhile when it comes to studying the Bible. The big picture is important, but much of the richness of Scripture is found in the details. And so we've been given a lot of time to that. The big picture uh, is Paul is 
as I said, writing this letter to the church in Colossae. It's interesting, you notice there in chapter two, verse one, that Paul also mentions the church of Laodicea. Uh, in chapter four, verse 13, Paul adds another church in that region, the church in Hierapolis. And so Paul, I think, anticipates that his letter that he wrote to the Colossians was going to be shared with these other churches as well, located in the Lycus Valley region of what we call modern Turkey today. It's also important to remember that Paul had not been to any of these churches. He didn't know most of the people that he wrote this letter to. Uh, And yet, Paul has this heart and this love for these people that he's not met before. So much so that he takes time to write this letter, of course, and his message is becoming clear and clear, his concern. These little churches here in this little valley area, Colossae included, are, are being tempted to shift from the gospel that was first taught to them. And, and Paul is very concerned about, uh, for these churches. He wants them to continue in the faith, to continue in the gospel that they have heard. Um, as chapter two, verse seven says, to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. So because he's not met any of them really before, or, or most of them he's not met, he, he feels compelled here in his letter to take some time to talk a little bit about his ministry, uh, his philosophy of ministry. That was at the end of chapter one. He's clarifying his motives. He's clarifying his methods to them. He wants them to be able to trust in him. I think it's also because there may have been some false teachers there and he wanted them to have a standard by which to measure what a faithful ministry looks like. And so we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. Uh, And so having done that, now Paul comes to chapter two and here he's kind of opening his heart to them. He, he, He wants them to know about his his special hopes, his concerns that he had for them. Notice verse five, he says, though he was absent in body from them, he was with them in spirit. We know what that means. If you've ever been separated from someone you love geographically, you know what it means to be separated from them by space, but how your heart longs for them. So here's Paul being separated from these people, many of whom he's never met, and yet he's sharing with them his heart his love. So let's look at the words closer, uh, more carefully this morning. First, I want you to note, Paul talks about the struggle that he faces. Verse one, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. The word struggle there in verse one, if you look right back at Verse 29, the verse right before it, you remember he was toiling and struggling, he said, with all of his energy in the work of ministry, but here he personalizes it. He says, I am struggling for you, he says. How was he struggling for them? People whom he wasn't even there with. Uh, According to chapter four, verse 18, Paul is actually in prison when he writes this letter to them. He's been jailed because he's been preaching the gospel faithfully and yet he's struggling for them. What does he mean by that? Well, from the context, I think he means two things. First, he's struggling to proclaim Christ, right? That's what he's just said. Our memory verse, 
uh, chapter one, verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, he says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Notice, even though Paul is in prison, his ministry of proclamation continues. How does it continue? It's by, by writing these letters uh, to churches, by meeting uh, with people. He was allowed to have visitors. He's even proclaiming the gospel to the Roman guards who were guarding him. So he's proclaiming Christ. He's laboring uh, for them. And if the Colossians, I think, were to stop and realize and stop and think about it, they would realize that the gospel came to them precisely because Paul is writing these letters and proclaiming Christ to them. But secondly, and I think this is more notable, he's struggling in his prayer for them. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. It's the same language that he uses, again, in chapter four, verse 12, when he talks about Epaphras, he said, who's always struggling on your behalf in prayers. And so separated from the Colossians, unable to be present with them, unable to protect them, unable to proclaim Christ in person to them, he devotes himself to prayer and he's struggling in that prayer. The word is literally praying to the point of exhaustion. Now, I don't know about you, but that's, that's tremendous to me. It's it's an incredible thought about Paul's heart. He's struggling to pray for people he doesn't even know, for people he's not even met. And it tells us, I think, a lot about what Paul is in his heart, about what he believes about prayer, how important it is. We think about prayer for just a moment. For Paul, prayer is not a passive activity. It's not a passive activity. You might say that prayer is where the action is. It's hard for us to get into our our minds. Occasionally, uh, when I'm I'm visiting with senior adults uh, often, but I hear sometimes from some of our oldest senior adults who, who feel like their strength to serve is waning and they're not able to do what they used to do. But then they'll often say something like this, all I can do now is pray. And beloved, I I would just tell you, don't ever say, all I can do now is pray. Because that that implies that prayer is some passive, unimportant, ineffective kinds of activity. The Bible teaches about prayer, that when we pray, we are on the front lines of the battle. The front lines, You're, you're not on the back lines. If all you can do is pray, if all that you can do because in your, your age or your health, you're, you're physically limited with what you can do and you suddenly find yourself with more time to pray, beloved, you have moved to the front lines of the fight. How many revivals have begun because of, of faithful men and women praying? How many churches have been planted and revitalized through prayer, how many pastors and missionaries have been called and sinners converted, saints sustained through the faithful prayers of God's people. But there's a reason here that Paul calls prayer a great struggle, isn't it? Does anybody struggle with prayer? 
Only four of you. I'm surprised. I really thought the number would have been higher. It's a great struggle, isn't it? There's a, a spiritual battle that's raging behind the scenes. And you may or may not have thought about this, but I think this is often one of the main points of the attack of Satan. It is to, to, is to keep you out of this book and to keep you off of your knees. And he will labor to do that very thing with you. He will try to convince you that you have it all together. You don't really need to spend very much time praying. He'll try to convince you that just a brief prayer, you know, a few seconds here and there, that will be enough. He'll try to convince you that you're too busy to give more time to that. Look how busy you are. Think of all the activities. He'll try to convince you that you're not the type of person to sit around and be passive and pray. You're a go-getter. You don't need to pray. Leave that to other people to pray. And besides, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but when you do commit yourself to pray, I don't know about you, but it seems to happen to me, the phone will ring, the text messages will start coming in, the dog will throw up in the floor. Um, yeah, we could go on and on of all the things that suddenly just come into your life. You have a poor night's sleep and so forth. Think about how hard Satan works to keep you from praying and think about how important it must be. And it is, isn't it? You, you cannot live the Christian life without prayer. You cannot bear fruit apart from abiding in Christ in prayer. So a point of application, when was the last time you labored in prayer for someone or something? It's amazing how... Some, some of us, some can play video games for hours. We can watch TV for hours. We can garden for hours. We can get on the Facebook for hours. But we can't spend 30 minutes in prayer. Wayne Mack wrote this. He says, the greatest need of our churches today is not for profound theologians or powerful preachers or other resources, though they are necessary and helpful. The greatest need is for people to pray biblically, unceasingly, and powerfully. A church may not have the next Spurgeon in its pulpit, and it may lack many resources for ministry, but if its people pray, it will be effective. Satan trembles when even the weakest Christian is on his knees praying before God. Why is that? Because so much of the needs, and we just sing about how much we need the Lord, is things that only God can do in our lives, beloved. Paul realizes this. But when was the last time you labored in prayer for your lives, for your, uh, for your ministries, for your future, for your marriage, for your families? Beloved, we are ultimately upheld by the gracious hand of God through prayer. It was a struggle, Paul says. Notice, secondly, he says the outcome. The outcome that he desires. He says... Verse two, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
to reach all the fullness, the riches of full assurance, of understanding, of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul is laboring in proclaiming Christ and praying because he desires to see these deep and profound things to happen in the Colossian Christians' lives. Another way to look at this, um, those of you who remember chapter 1, verse 28, when Paul said he's proclaiming Christ in order to present everyone mature in Christ, verse 28, he's also praying to that end. And in a sense here, in chapter 2, verse 2, he gives us a glimpse of what a mature Christian looks like, what he's wanting the outcome to be. Notice just three of them. First, he says they are encouraged in heart. They're encouraged in the heart. The heart is, speaking there, is the the wellspring of life, Proverbs tells us. It's the, the mainspring of all that we do. Out of our hearts flow our words. Out of our hearts flow activities, decisions, how we live our life. All comes from within us. And what Paul is praying for here is that we would recognize that that Christ, who is the hope of glory, that he lives in us and that Christ will reign in our hearts. And we would be encouraged in him. Now, Paul's gonna flesh this out in chapters three and four. He'll talk about Chapter 3, verse 15, letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He's going to talk about letting the word of Christ dwell in you. He's going to talk about having a sincerity of heart, which is fearing the Lord. He's going to talk about whatever we do, we should do it with all of our hearts to the Lord. He's going to flesh that out. But these are changes, again, only that God can do in the heart. He's laboring in prayer that we would be encouraged by Christ, not discouraged by our circumstances, not, uh, n- not being led by the, 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 the fluctuating feelings that we have and being blown all over the place, but that we would be influenced by Christ and transformed by Christ and led by Christ in all that we do, to be encouraged. When was the last time you prayed for someone to be encouraged in Christ? Secondly, he's laboring and preaching in prayer that they would be united in love. That's verse two again, that their hearts may be encouraged. Notice this, being knit together in love. He wants their hearts to be knit together, means united. And he's speaking here about the church, about collectively as the body of Christ. Verse 19 He said, um, holding fast to the head, speaking of Jesus, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together. There it is again. Through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. The idea is that all the parts, all the people in the church are are being put together in a way that leaves them This remarkable picture, they're put together, connected to the head who is Jesus Christ, and they're put together in such a way that it leaves them almost without any personal identity of themselves, that together we are one body, the people of God, 
holding fast to Christ. A little differently, in Ephesians, Ephesians 4.4, 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That, that's the truth. That's, that's the reality of what Christ has done for us. That's the position. But he's praying here that we would do this practically together. That we would be knit together, united in love. Philippians 2.2, 2, complete my joy, he said, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So that's what he's laboring in prayer about. He's praying for this little church, this little people we don't even know about, and he's saying, oh God, please encourage, encourage their hearts, knit them together in your love. And then third, he wants them to be settled in understanding He says, again, verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We might could summarize all three of these things by saying something like, Paul is writing to and praying to encourage them to stick together in the truth, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice the connectedness. He recognizes that lasting unity depends upon the truth as well as love. Both of those things together. He wants them to be assured they've received the gospel truth. He wants them to be settled in this gospel, to know it, to not be tossed to and fro, not knowing what they believe or why they believe it, but, but, but to be settled in their convictions, settled, convinced of the gospel, entrenched in the knowledge of truth, having confidence, full assurance that Christ lives in you, encouraged, united, and settled. This is what he's laboring to pray about. Now let me ask you, does that describe anything of you? Your life, are you settled in your convictions about Jesus, who he is, what he's done for you? Have you been united to him? Are you connected in a church body through the salvation that he Offers. Do you know Christ and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Do you understand today that your works cannot save you, but only the work of Jesus Christ can save you? Do you know that he's your only hope? Do you know that the sinless son of God, whom we've been singing about, who was slain on the cross, that you might be forgiven and have eternal life, that he is your only hope for salvation? These things are too important for us to be unsure about them. Too important not to be able to articulate them and share them with our children and raise them in Christ. These convictions must be settled. Encouraged, united, and settled, he says. Here's why that's important. Number three, notice the warning that he issues. Verse four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Hmm. 
So in other words, the danger is if you're not encouraged and united and settled in Christ, then you're in danger of being deluded, deceived, led astray, blown here and there by every wind of thought that comes down the path. And so Paul is praying for them, praying desperately for them. There's this clear and present danger And so he's laboring in prayer. How does this deception come? He says it comes through plausible arguments. Now think about that word. It comes through literally persuasive, false teaching comes through fine-sounding arguments. It comes through things that sound plausible. They sound persuasive, they sound enticing. Maybe it's from a charismatic kind of preacher who, who well, he just seems like he's a trustworthy fellow. I think this is one of the great dangers of the church today. And, and here's what's making this more dangerous is, is the lack of discernment among God's people. Just not being settled enough in their convictions to know what is true and false. Now, I'm at the, at the risk of maybe running, uh, uh, of ruffling your feathers a little bit. I think a recent example of this is an advertising campaign that you may have seen on the TV. It's called He Gets Us. Has anybody seen any commercials like this? Maybe you saw it during the Super Bowl or you've seen it on YouTube or some other kind of place. Usually it's a very heart-stirring kind of commercial with images and video of, of people, uh, very, you know, very, very heart-moving kinds of things. And at the end of the, the commercial, the message is, is you'll see these, these lines. Uh, here's some of them. Jesus suffered from anxiety too. He gets us. Or Jesus struggled to make ends meet too. He gets us. Jesus was wrongly judged too. He gets us. Now, no matter how well those commercials are packaged, and they are packaged very well, And no matter how persuasive they are or how they make you feel, I want I hope that you see that they are not presenting the Jesus of the Bible. They're just not. Jesus, the the picture, they're trying to humanize Jesus, by the way, which is always a huge flag when it comes to any kind of false teaching. But Jesus is not just our example. He is our Savior. He's not just a nice guy who came to inspire you and and someone in whom you can relate to and someone who gets you. He came to redeem you from your sins. He did not come to bring social justice. He came to bring salvation, you see. It's not just an incomplete picture of Jesus they are presenting, but at the end of the day, it's an inaccurate position, of picture of Jesus. And I think this is an example of why Paul is laboring and preaching in prayer 
why he says this, he says, beloved, beware that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. How do you guard yourself against this? Because there's a lot of that kind of thing going around today. Well, you need to have biblically sound and settled convictions. Here's what Dennis Johnson writes. He says, we must do the hard work of exercising discernment sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, argument by argument. Facts, insights, perspectives, and methods must all be tested in the light of the principles of Scripture. He quotes Hebrews 5.14. He says, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, Paul's gonna have more to say on this shortly, but right now, he just wants them to know his heart, why he's writing them. I'm so concerned about you. He says, I'm praying to the point of exhaustion for you for this particular reason so that you won't be deluded and turn away from Christ and the gospel. We need to examine all teaching that we hear for the truthfulness of its content rather than the attractiveness of its packaging. Always look for the content. Well, finally, and we're approaching lunch, note this, he says, the joy the joy that he shares. Verse five, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The good news is, he says here, is that the church in Colossae seem to be holding firm. He's thankful to hear it. It's as if Paul is saying, I'm so thankful that you're still hanging in there and not diverting from this. He uses two words, the words order and firmness. Now, both of those are military words. And they're words that the church needs to recapture today. We are not in peace times, church. It speaks of a uh, order, speaks of rank and file. And, and in other words, he's saying you're still holding rank and file, you're still holding your shape. The word firmness speaks of like the solid front of soldiers who are ready to take a stand. Paul says, you're holding rank, you're withstanding the attacks, you're standing in the strength of the Lord, and it brings him great joy. Church, it brings our Lord great joy when we stand on the truth of his gospel. Are you standing there today? Let me ask this in closing. How is God working in your life? What is he doing in you? How is he working in your heart in these things? What are you praying for? Have you been laboring in prayer? Are you laboring in prayer for others or yourself to be, as Paul says, encouraged, united, and settled in Christ? Do you have a desire to grow in your discernment? Are you growing in discernment? Are you seeking the truth? Are you standing firm in the faith? Or are 
Are you drifting from the gospel that you heard? Or maybe the question today is, have you discovered the riches of full assurance from having Christ Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Do you even know him today? Here's the answer. Why not get on your knees and plead with God for these things? Church, we need the Lord. Amen? Our world needs the Lord. If you don't know him today, but you're finding in yourself desires to know him, maybe you pray this, Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And I want to follow him as my Lord and Savior for the rest of my life. Have you prayed that? Will you pray that today? Lord, I need you. Lord, thank you for your word today and how it challenges us, Lord, on many fronts. Thank you for Paul's heart. Thank you that he shares it powerfully in this way of his prayer, his struggle to pray. Lord, of his love for these dear people, Lord, and uh, for discernment. Lord, we pray for the same things now in our own hearts and lives. Work in us, Lord, as only you can. We do need you. We need you at every aspect of our lives, of our relationships. Lord, may we fall at least on our proverbial knees today and express our great desire for you, for your salvation, for your sanctification in our lives. Do this work, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna do one more final song this morning and uh, if you would like someone to pray with you, I'll be right here in the front. Be glad to greet you and pray with whatever is on your heart and mine today. But let's stand and sing together.
Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Amen. You thankful for Christ today? Amen. So glad that you're here. Again, for those uh, involved in Cross Court, we look forward to lunch over in the gym where we've been playing basketball at. That's where we're going to be meeting right after this service. I'd remind First Baptist folks, we have a lot of guests here. Look for somebody uh, wearing a jersey, uh, somebody that you don't know, uh, and uh, talk to them and greet them and thank them for being here today. I'm going to pray, and this prayer will also be our blessing for uh, the lunch for those families Lord Jesus, thank you again for the salvation that we have in you. And we pray, Lord, uh, for your blessing on uh, the remainder of our day and week. We would leave going forth as lights of the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together with families from our cross-court ministry. We pray your blessing on that time over our food today. We pray this for, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.